You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. There are people who have the characteristics of a serial killer but have never harmed anyone. And there are people who are serial killers who have those same characteristics and have murdered 15, 20, or more. Renowned former FBI profiler Roy Hazelwood. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Roy Hazelwood is widely regarded as the pioneer of profiling sexual predators. What he accomplished during his career at the FBI helped lay the foundation for today's work by profilers at the FBI. Hazelwood wrote a book in 1999 reflecting on some of the bigger cases that he had worked on over the years and how he does his work. His book was called The Evil That Men Do. And that's when I had the chance to speak with him. So here now from 1999, Roy Hazelwood... Yeah, this is not a book designed to horrify or to titillate or it's not a salacious book. It is a very educational book, but a horrifyingly educational book. That's true, and I think the title is uh, extremely apropos, The Evil That Men Do. Is uh, Maybe I should ask a philosophical question at this point. Do you believe in evil? Yes, I do. I do believe in evil. Some... I see it uh, every day in my work. Mm. I see that... Uh, Offenders commit crimes for which there's uh, almost no other explanation except that they, in fact, have this evil desire to inflict pain and injury and hurt on others. How does one get into the specialty that you found yourself in? I mean, this is not something that I can imagine you as a 12-year-old thinking someday you'd like to do for a living. No, as a matter of fact, uh, if you, as it's described in the book, uh, my entire life is a set of circumstances that came together. I'll give you one very brief example. When I graduated from high school, my father asked me where I was going to college, and I said, I'm not. I want to go to work at the ironworks and buy a mercury convertible. And he said, fine, but where are you going to live? And I said, what do you mean? He said, you're 18, and I decided to go to college. So every decision I've had has almost been forced upon me. I came to be in the behavioral science unit uh, at the FBI Academy. Uh, I was assigned there to another unit and a vacancy became open. And so I applied for the vacancy simply because I didn't want to transfer. I wanted to stay at Quantico. There was no parking problems, no traffic problems, <laughs> and I got to travel around the world. What a pragmatic guy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, after I joined the unit, not because of that, but after I joined the unit, uh, it became rather well-known through movies and articles and uh, television shows. But also, obviously, it's something that you've loved doing. Yes, I do. It's, it's fascinating work, and uh, the reason it's fascinating is because these are men who have put a great deal of time and effort into the commission of their crimes, as much time and effort as we put into trying to identify and apprehend them. So uh, it, it's, uh, it's like a giant chess game, if you will. I was just going to say there must be an enormously gratifying mental challenge to you in, in knowing that. And it's not just a game. That must be the, the ultimate thing. It's not a game. It's, this, is, this is reality. This, this is real life. That's true. It's certainly not a game. And all we have to remind ourselves is that is remember the victims that are involved in these crimes. Uh, but it is, in fact, a, a, a mental chess game, particularly when you sit down and you interview them. Uh, one individual that I interviewed was a uh, physician who had raped over 60 stranger victims. And when I went in to introduce myself to him, I said, my name, he said, I know who you are. He said, you're Roy Hazelwood. I said, how did you know that? He said, when I was raping, I did a literature search on rape, and I've read everything you've ever written. 
I couldn't resist it. I had to say, well, I makes us even because I've read everything you've ever done. (laughs) But here was a man then who had actually studied uh, my writings. But maybe he was in fact committing the crimes. I think the point should be made that evil does not equal stupid. No, it certainly does not. And uh, perversity does not equal uh, callousness, if you will, or uh, does not equal uh, coldness, if you will. These people have a lot of emotions which are exhibited through their crimes. Are they psychologically disturbed? Are they mentally ill? Are they insane? I think that they not insane. No, there are some, but not insane. Uh, I think they are disturbed. Uh, they're not like you and I, certainly. They don't have the same inhibitors that you and I have, breaks, if you will, on our behavior. But if you were to interact with a large majority of them, there are certainly exceptions, but the large majority of them would be conversing, uh, and you would never know that they were, in fact, criminals. That's the thing that I think most people, especially women, will find horrifying, is that men like this don't go around with a big neon sign on their forehead saying, I am a serial rapist, or I will kill you. Absolutely. I address in the book, uh, briefly, my interviews of 20 women who were married to or dated these men exclusively. And without exception, these women all reported that they thought they had met the knight in shining armor. Uh, These women, by the way, were middle-class, highly intelligent people, not the ones you would normally associate with being uh, affiliated with these types of people. Not easily fooled. Uh, No, not easily fooled. That's correct. These men are highly manipulative. Well, I mean, the archetype for that is Ted Bundy. Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, anybody who can fool as many intelligent women as he did and fool them in a fatal way like that... I don't want to say we have to admire him, but certainly there's something about him that, that is extraordinary. It certainly is. Uh, you're familiar with what his criteria was for victims. Uh, basically, he reported to a colleague of mine, Bill Hagmar, that his criteria was that they be worthy victims. And when uh, Bill inquired us what was meant by that, he said anyone can get a prostitute, anyone can get a child, but to get a middle-class, intelligent woman to willingly walk away with a total stranger takes class. That's an interesting uh, note from Ted Bundy. Wow. Good heavens. The, the range of people that you've dealt with in your career, the people that are, for better or worse, household names, is astounding. You, What, what, what kind of work you've done, it, it's amazing. It's, uh, it's amazing to me. Uh, my wife and I will be sitting there watching television, and uh, we'll see something in one of the shows that came from the Behavioral Science Unit. You even watch a show like Law & Order that bases so many of its episodes on real cases. And, and, and to realize, that sounds like the case I worked on. That's exactly right. I've recognized some of the cases on some of those shows. Not Law & Order particularly, but some of those shows, yes. But again, the, the point that you're making, though, is that as entertaining as those are, as entertainment, that's one thing. The job you have to do is is grimly different from what they do in Hollywood. Absolutely. And... Uh, some of the cases I've been uh, fortunate enough to have worked on and been involved with, uh, you could not have scripted the endings. I'm reminded of one which we addressed in the book uh, on Melvin Ignato in Louisville, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. You probably read that in there. And uh, we're getting ready to go to trial. He'd already been acquitted once. So now we're trying for perjury for lying mm-hmm. in the grand jury about having committed the murder. And we had no evidence. And five days before the trial was set to commence on circumstantial evidence, we found three rolls of film, which he had taken of the victim all the way up to the time of death. Now, that could not have been scripted. 
After this short break, Roy Hazelwood recalls another case with a startling twist. Now back to my 1999 conversation with Roy Hazelwood. The, the, the Clayton Hartwig case. Yes. Here's a case that at first glance the Navy's looking at it as to just how this could have happened and what kind of technical things must have gone wrong. And suddenly it falls into your lap as something entirely different. Yeah, in fact, uh, we knew going into that case that it was a no-win situation. We were either going to disappoint the Navy or we we're going to disappoint the politicians. And uh, we tried to give an honest opinion, and we stand by that opinion, that Clayton Hartwick blew up that ship and killed himself and 47 other people. We defended that opinion in front of the House Armed Services Committee and the uh, U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee, and that was not a very friendly audience, I might add. <laughs> Good. Well, yours is a thankless job uh, often. Often, oftentimes is true. And, and even even when it, it is a th not a thankless job, it still it can't be a very pleasant job. You have to break all sorts of bad news to all sorts of people all the time. And frequently our clients, by telling our clients, we're unable to assist you. Uh, there's just not enough information there, or uh, we don't believe it happened the way you thought it happened. I know we were retained by a client uh, on a particular murder case, and uh, we had to tell that client it's not your son, but it's someone else very close to you that was involved in this crime. And that was devastating to the client, but we had to be honest about our opinions. Well, things aren't, certainly aren't always, and maybe not even often, what they first appear to be. That's correct. That's correct. You've got homicides that look like suicides, suicides that look like homicides. I've testified in homicide cases where they were staged to appear to be accidental. I've testified in cases where it was staged to be exactly the opposite. One was staged to be a homicide when, in fact, it was an accidental death. But the uh, wife in that case was so distraught over what she learned, she tried to stage it to be a homicide because of embarrassment and shame on her part. So you'll see almost every possible combination, a lot of which are reported on in that book. Wow. Now, can, can I or my wife or my daughters, can we find out how not to become victims by reading your book? I think you'll get better insight. Uh, I'm not going to say uh, that you won't become a victim because of reading the book, but I'm going to say you're going to have a lot more insight than you did before you read the book. But I can tell you now that the uh, best way to assure you're not going to become the victim is to be alert, uh, be cognizant of what's going on around you, and use your common sense. I mean, those are the key words. People don't want to hear that. They want to feel like Viagra. But there's no pill to protect yourself against these people, and just be alert and use your common sense. And you need not be paranoid. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. In fact, when you become paranoid, you begin to impact on your own life in a negative sense, and that's that's not necessary. Because the other thing I've read about watching too much TV is people who watch a lot of TV crime shows tend to overestimate what their chances are of becoming a victim. That's true. I recall at one time when the Behavioral Science Unit was first beginning that we heard there were 50,000 serial killers out there, and we were trying to tell people we only knew of 36 that were operating, but no one wanted to listen to that. You see, they wanted to hear there were 50,000. If that were the case, Bill, neither you or I would be here alive today. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a lot of serial killers. That's a killers. lot of serial killers. That's right. Now, I, I suppose, though, I mean, the person who reads your book might be tempted to think there could be 50,000 people out there who have the potential to develop the characteristics of a serial killer. Well, there are people who have the characteristics of a serial killer, but have never harmed anyone, you 
see. And there are people who are serial killers who have those same characteristics and have murdered 15, 20 or more. So the characteristics themselves are not sufficient to say a person is or is not a serial killer. It's his acts. It's his behavior. If detectives arrive at a homicide scene and there are indications that it is sexual in nature somehow, does that automatically help you find the killer? Well, it's a combination of things at the scene. Uh, what type of victim was selected? Uh, where were they encountered? Where were they taken? Uh, how were they murdered? Uh, what sexual acts took place? What, if anything, was taken from the victim? Uh, how did the offender leave the victim? Did he display the victim? Did he conceal the victim? Or did he simply just leave the victim? All those things play a role in determining what type of offender you're looking for. It's not any one, two, or three things. It's the combination of items that we look at. It's amazing what you can find out about the personality of an unknown killer, some person out there who's killed just by the clues that they've left behind. It is. It's truly it is psychological what you, can, what you can find out about them. It is, and it's, it's having seen so many of them and having talked to so many of these offenders that you begin to see patterns that you now associate with personality types. When we do a profile, we don't attempt to identify a particular person. We attempt to identify a personality type. So we're not trying to say he did it. We're trying to say someone like this committed this crime. And then it helps the uh, police narrow the focus of their investigation. Well, certainly it helps them rule out certain people. Well, it, it contributes to ruling out mm -hmm. certain people, yes. Mm -hmm. it's, it, it's, it's astounding. I mean, the readers, readers of true crime, readers of mystery novels, your book reads like like a, a great hybrid of, of both. I mean, it's it's we have the pleasure of knowing this is all true. You didn't make this up. But on the other hand, it moves swiftly along each case, just like just like a whodunit. Well, I appreciate hearing that. The New York Times said that it's part biography, part casebook, and part textbook. And I think that's absolutely correct. Roy Hazelwood died in 2016. He was 78. And you can get your copy of The Evil That Men Do by clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, HeardEverything.com. And while you're at HeardEverything.com, don't miss my 2010 interview with another renowned criminal profiler, Pat Brown. If you behave in a squirrely manner and you become a person of interest to a profiler, to a detective, well, maybe you should change your behavior. Nobody's saying you did it, but you sure look like you could have done it. And my chilling 1994 interview with Ted Bundy's last lawyer, Holly Nelson. It's easy to show compassion for people that are deserving, but true compassion is shown when the subject is undeserving, and Ted seemed the least deserving of all. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. Thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, you may recall the story from 20 years ago now about the man who was rock climbing in Utah and literally got trapped between a rock and a hard place, and the only way he could save his life was by cutting off his own arm. Don't miss my 2005 interview with Aaron Ralston. I mean, you don't want to be a Ripley's Believe It or Not entry. Well, actually, I am. But are, you really, what, are you really? I will forever and always be known as the guy who cut his arm off. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. <laughs>